The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Mark chapter 6, verse 45 and following. Immediately, He made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And they got out of the boat. And the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Each of the gospel writers record for us different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry each with different purposes and from different angles. Mark is writing what is the first recorded gospel of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And the main purpose of the gospel of Mark is to show that Jesus is the son of God. God. I know it's been a long time since we were in Mark 1 verse 1, but it's worth being reminded of the very way that that Mark began this gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God. So the angle that Mark takes as he records for us the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said is to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, not everything that Jesus said and did is is recorded in the Gospels. There's not enough pages in the volumes of libraries to hold all that Jesus said and did. But everything that Mark is writing and everything that Jesus has done in the gospel of Mark 
is pointing to this truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the promised one. And for those who followed him, not just the crowds, even his disciples, this truth is a hard one to take. Those who witness Jesus, those who hear Jesus teach, those who see the things that Jesus does, it's pretty clear and it's obvious that there is something different about this man, that there is something special about this man. This is why Jesus' fame has spread the way that it has. This is why upwards of 20,000 people are gathered to to be near him and to hear him and to, to see what he is going to do. There is obviously something different about him. There is obviously something special about him. But it seems that they were unable to put their finger on it. And they did not yet, even at this point, believe. That Jesus is the Son of God. Can you imagine Can you imagine being there, witnessing these things, hearing these things, seeing Jesus with your own eyes? Can you imagine what it would have been like? I think it's common for those who struggle with faith or belief to think, if only I had been there to see Jesus, it would be easier for me to believe. I can come to the pages of scripture and I can hear sermons preached and I can be told that it happened, but it's hard for me to believe. And if I've seen it, maybe then I would believe. But these had seen it. They had witnessed the miraculous healings, the multiplication of food, the calming of a storm. Yet they still did not understand. They had seen thousands of miracles up until this point. And they are not doubting whether or not those miracles had taken place. They just don't quite yet understand who it is that's doing them. Because faith isn't always about just what you can see, is it? The writer of Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. That verse resonates for us because we on this side of Jesus's life and death and burial and resurrection are unable to see him with our own eyes. And so when we think in terms of faith, we think, well, we haven't seen Jesus. We haven't witnessed Jesus. So faith is certainly in the things that are yet unseen. But even for them, even though they see, they don't yet see. And the faith and the belief of exactly who this man is goes unseen. The question for you and the question for me is, do you believe? Do you believe not just that Jesus lived, not just that Jesus was a good man, not just that Jesus did amazing things and taught great things and was a a good teacher and a good role model and a good example. Do you believe that Jesus is the promised son of God? Do you believe that this man 
is God in the flesh. The most important thing about you and the most important thing about me is what we believe about Jesus. Every other decision pales in comparison to that one decision. Do you believe? And from this morning's text, we, we learn some pretty amazing things about Jesus. And we'll learn them just as Jesus' disciples learned them. And by God's grace, as we see them, we will be changed and our belief strengthened just as theirs was. Let's look together at the text this morning, starting in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So the setting, the context of what is recorded next comes immediately following the feeding of the multitudes where Jesus takes a young child's lunch and multiplies it miraculously to feed a crowd of 20,000 people leaving 12 baskets of food left over for each of the hungry and tired disciples. Well, Mark, whose favorite word is immediately, moves quickly from the feeding of the 5,000 to immediately Jesus pushing his disciples off of the shore in the boat. And Mark doesn't tell us what's going on here, but the other gospels do. The people who had witnessed Jesus' feeding of the multitudes now want to come and take him and make him the king. Not because they believe and they rightly understand that Jesus is the king of kings. But because they believe that in Jesus they can get some free meals. And so they want to take him and they want to make him king. Now, just for a second, put yourself there. As one of the disciples. And you've been following Jesus around. You're one of his closest compatriots. You've been witness to all of these things. You've been treated special by him. And now there are thousands of people who want to come and take him and make him king. The guy that's treated you special. The guy that's taken you in. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? That would be something that would be like, heck yeah, you know. I mean, they already wanted this. That's why they argued about who would sit at his right hand. And so I can imagine as a disciple there with Jesus, as Jesus' fame grows and as the fervor of this, this crowd grows of taking Jesus and making him, setting him the, as the king over Rome... Man, this would be really exciting. 
as a disciple, but Jesus wants none of it. And this is why he has to come and take his disciples and make them get in the boat and leave. That's the language Mark uses here. It is firm language. He forced them into the boat and sent them out to sea. I see it as this crowd of people clamoring on Jesus and he's grabbing Peter and he's grabbing Matthew and he's pushing them and he's getting them in the boat and he gives it a swift kick and sends them out into the, to the sea against their will. And then Jesus turning and pretty firmly probably dismissing the crowd Now, how do you dismiss 20,000 people away? Well, you do it when you're God. In the same way, you can make 20,000 people sit down in groups of 50 and 100 and, and feed them efficiently. You can just send them away. And so Jesus sends the crowd away. As he pushes the disciples out onto the sea. Verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, the crowd, he went up onto the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. He was alone on the land. Jesus in this moment sends his disciples on ahead of him and retreats up to on the mountain. This is common language of, of Jesus going being alone up in the mountain or um, you know in a garden to, to pray alone with his, his father. I can imagine Jesus being fully man and fully God, knowing the purpose for which he has come and that that purpose is one to be rejected and despised and crucified in this moment. Come and be our king. Come and be our king. It must have been difficult. And so his response is to get alone by himself and to pray to commune with his father. We see in this moment, much like we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, our suffering Savior, alone with the Father, praying And so evening comes, this small boat with his disciples is out on the sea and he is alone on the land. Verse 48, Mark says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them and about the fourth watch of the night. So Jesus sends them out to sea to go and pray. And Mark tells us that now was about the fourth watch of the night. This would be between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. This is the darkest part of the night. Now, if you follow the timeline, Jesus would have sent his disciples out and between six and nine hours would have passed until the fourth watch of the night. So the disciples are, as Mark puts it, making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. For at least six hours, maybe up to nine hours, difficult, long, hard rowing and getting nowhere. Struggling, Without Jesus 
in the dark. John tells us that they were at this point three to four miles out onto the sea. So three to four miles of rowing against the wind as waves crashing into the boat in the darkest of the night. Working hard. Beards dripping with seawater. Exhausted. Tired. Frustrated. Mark tells us that Jesus sees them. Now, what do we make of that? Jesus sees them. So Jesus alone, the middle of the night, nothing but the moonlight, sees this small glimmer three to four miles out and sees his disciples there struggling against the wind and against the waves. Impossible. But for God, in Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hebrews 4, 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Mark just... easily, covertly, drops in. Jesus sees them. Jesus sees them as a statement of his divinity. Only God could see them in that moment. Only God would know where they were and what their struggle was. Jesus is God and he sees them there. He sees them. And Mark says, I just love the way Mark puts it. He came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. That easy, that simple. He came to them, three to four miles out. And here he comes walking on the sea. Now, Jesus has done some amazing things. Jesus has done some miraculous things. But this one right here takes things to a whole nother level. I've heard it explained this way by a preacher. It would be like if you were at a basketball game and during the halftime show, they they pulled somebody out of the crowd and they put him on half court and they spun him around 20 times and they handed him a basketball and said, if you can make this half court shot, we'll give you $10,000. And staggering and dizzily throws up a shot and makes it. That's pretty amazing, right? And then the, the, everybody in their amazement, you know, empties their seats and comes down onto the court to celebrate with this guy. And then there in the middle of that, he begins to flap his arms and fly to the roof. That would be a whole nother level of amazement, right? Anybody could maybe, possibly, given enough time and enough tries, you know, blindly make that shot, but nobody could flap their wings and start, their arms and start flying. This is, this is what 
happens here with, with Jesus. This is what it's like for his disciples. This takes things to a, a whole nother level. Yes, he had calmed the sea, but maybe it was just some coincidence. Yeah, he had multiplied the food, but maybe there was something we didn't see or know. But this one in particular, utterly amazing. And so imagine what it is that they see. They're in the dark, soaking wet, straining, tired, exhausted, probably fighting with one another. They look out in the darkness and they see this figure moving towards them. Albert Edersheim put it this way. Even so, it seemed as if they could make no progress when all at once and the track that lay behind them a figure appeared. As it passed onwards over the water, seemingly upborne by the waves as they rose, but not disappearing as they fell. But carried on as they rolled, the silvery moon laid upon the trembling waters, the shadow of that form as it moved, long and dark on their track. Imagine this figure being seemingly taken upward by the waves, but not descending when they fall. Striding over the waves at which you've toiled all nights. Naturally, verse 49 But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. In this moment of seeing Jesus there, their misery as they strain against the wind for hours on end now turns to dread. Because they thought they had seen a ghost, a specter, a spirit. And folklore in their day was... That if you were one who was going to die at sea, a spirit would come and take you to the deep. And so they think, here it is. This is the end. The spirit has come to take us. Now, what is Jesus doing here as he walks to them over the water? You know, there was a phrase there that, that I skipped over. I read it, but we didn't talk about it, did we? He meant to pass them by. So we have here, Mark, in this little phrase, gives us this, the reasoning behind Jesus walking across the water. He meant to pass them by. Now, what does that mean? Just curious. When I read over that, was that the first time you ever really even noticed it there? Well, this is a phrase that's caused some disagreement throughout history as to its meaning. And I'll be honest with you. Um, I'm not entirely sure which of the two possible meanings that are probably the most plausible, which of the two are true. Um, So let's explore them both. 
this morning because I think they both are true. I think they're both are true. This phrase, Jesus meant to pass them by, is a familiar phrase and it is familiar language um, to the Christian, but especially to the Jew. If a Jew would have read this, they would have known exactly where they'd heard this before. Because it is the exact same language. The exact same word in the Greek used here in Mark is the exact same word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in Exodus 33. Exodus 33, starting in verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Exact same word. And then I will take my hand away that you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Exact same word, exact same phrase. And the common understanding of this text is that in this moment, Jesus meant to show them his glory as the creator God. When Jesus means to pass by them, he means I will pass them by and show them my glory as the creator God. Jesus is in this moment making visible to the disciples what Job knew of God but had never witnessed. Job, in answering to his so-called friends in Job 9, says, Truly, I know that it is so. But how can a man be right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. Because he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Who commands the sun and it does not rise. Who seals up the stars. Who alone stretched out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea. There's only one. 
There's only one that can trample on the waves. There's only one who is able to do that. And that is God Almighty. He's the only one. And so when Jesus means to pass them by, what he is doing in that moment is making visible what was invisible yet Job knew. Here before your eyes, disciples, you will see the mighty God who tramples the waves. This is a moment of divine revelation of the glory of our great God found in the person of Jesus Christ. This man, Jesus, is the God who hid Moses and passed him by. This man, Jesus, is the God who walks on water. Now, I believe that this is an accurate understanding of this text. That to say that Jesus passed him by was a direct reference back to Exodus 33, so that they would see that Jesus is the God of glory, is the right and accurate understanding of what's meant here. And I believe that it is even more clearly driven home by Jesus' response to them. So they look and they see Jesus walking on the waters, seemingly upborn, never descending. And out of fear, they cry out. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart. They would have known that word. They would have heard it before. The exact same word. From Exodus 14, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Now, what's the context of Exodus 14 where Moses says those words? Fear not, stand firm, See the salvation of the Lord. What's the context? The context is the sure death of a group of Jews on the sea. As they've left captivity in Egypt and they've come to the Red Sea and they think you've brought us here to die. Either we turn around and we're killed by the sword or we go forward and we drowned. And Moses says, fear not. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. You see, these 12 Israelites weren't the first faithless Israelites to face death at sea. And Jesus comes to them and says, take heart. Exact same words as Moses. Take heart. Fear not. And in those words drawing them back to that moment at the edge of the Red Sea to say, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. But that's not all Jesus says. He doesn't just say, take heart. He says, it is I. 
it is I. In the Greek, ego, emi. In the Hebrew, Yahweh, I am. There is no mistaking what Jesus is saying. The exact same words, Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to them, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am. I am. Has sent you. So here is Jesus meaning to pass them by just as God passed by Moses, trampling on the waves just as Job said God could do. Take heart, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. It is I. I am. This miracle of Jesus is a clear statement of his divinity. Now, what Jesus is meaning to do in this moment is to now, in a, in, a, in a way yet to be seen by the disciples, reveal before their eyes, He is God. So that's one way to take these verses, and I think it, it certainly is the most Right. There's also another way to take it. And that this miracle is a clear illustration of not only Jesus' divinity, but also his sympathy. The other way to take this phrase, he meant to pass them by, is as taking it as he meant to come alongside of them. That Jesus, in the darkest hour of the night, seeing them in distress, at their most tired and their most discouraged, comes to their aid. You know, remember that it was Jesus who sent them there to begin with. And it was because of him that they had toiled in the darkness. Could it be that Jesus wanted them to come to the end of their human strength so that they might just fully rely on him. That certainly is true. It was true for them and it's true for us. Albert Edersheim again says, when Jesus constrained the disciples to enter the boat and go before him unto the other side, they must have thought that his purpose was to join them by land since there was no other boat there, save that in which they crossed the lake. And possibly such had been his intention until he saw their difficulty. If not danger from the contrary wind, this must have determined him to come to their help. And so this miracle also was not a mere display of power, but being caused by their need had a moral object. Now, I'm good with either one of those. Jesus, Jesus purposed 
to show them his glory as the divine creator God, as Yahweh, as I am, as the one who tramples the sea. And I'm good to say that Jesus saw them and came not just to show them his divinity, but to show them his sympathy so that they would fully rely on him. Nonetheless, verse 51, he got into the boat with them. And when he stepped into the boat, the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That's a tough phrase. It's a phrase that's, that's historically been difficult for people to understand. I think it just says to us exactly what the reality was. They had yet to see who Jesus really was. Mark says their hearts were hardened, not hardened to the point that they were incapable of believing, but hardened to the point to which they had not yet believed. But I believe that this night, things begin to change. And they begin to change in the hearts of the disciples because the disciples do something this night that they've yet to do. Now, Mark doesn't tell us. Mark leaves a good bit of things out. Did you notice one major thing that Mark left out? And I'm not even touching on it because we can't be here till 2 o'clock. Not a mention of Peter. Do you know why there's no mention of Peter? Because Peter's the one telling Mark this story. Not a mention of Peter. Mark also doesn't mention this, but Matthew records what they did as Jesus steps into the boat. Mark doesn't tell us. Mark also doesn't tell us that they teleported to the other side of the sea, which would have been awesome. But Matthew records what they did. Matthew 14, verses 32 through 33. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat, worshiped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. It's the first time. That's the first time. That's the first confession from these men that he is the son of God. That's the first time recorded that they worshiped him. This moment. This moment. Now, there is a lot of weight behind that. They worshiped him. And the weight of that is that they understood in that moment, he is God. Why? Because these are Jews. They would have had driven into them. There is but one God. There is but one God. They would have had it driven into them. You worship no one but God alone. And they stop in this moment to worship Jesus. There's some weight in that. I can remember, I had a friend in high school. I cannot remember her name. She was a great ahead of me, but she sat at our lunch table. She was a Jehovah's Witness. And 
we would have conversations and I would attempt to evangelize her. And our conversations would revolve around the deity of Jesus Christ, of Jesus being God. Because a Jehovah's Witness, if they believe exactly what Jehovah's Witness teaches, they deny the deity of God. And so we would go to things like John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Jehovah's Witness has in their translation, the Word was a God. We would have that discussion. So one day I took her to this verse. And I asked her, I said, do you believe Jesus was sinless? And she said, yes, I believe Jesus was sinless. I said, I want you to remember that. And we read this verse. And I said, in this moment, these disciples worship Jesus. Do you agree with that? She said, yeah, that's what it says. I said, and Jesus didn't stop them. And no, it doesn't seem like Jesus stopped them. So if Jesus wasn't God, then in that moment, Jesus committed idolatry. Therefore, he was sinful. Oh, never thought about it that way. No, Jesus received their worship because he was fully God. You see, this whole thing of, of Jesus walking on the water and Peter getting out and following it, following, it, it makes a great Hillsong song, right? Is it Hillsong that does oceans? Is it Hillsong? Okay, good. I didn't know. And, and sure, it's about trusting him and it's about looking to him. And you preach this message about Peter and Peter looking at him and walking and then looking at the sea and falling down. And we can very easily end up making it about ourselves and where we are in the trials of life. But that is not the point. The point is it makes clear who Jesus is. It's one of the best things you can do is remind yourself every day. This book, while it has great things for me, is not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about who he is. And in this moment, in a new way, these disciples see him and they confess, you're the son of God and they worship him. This is it, folks. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is the great I am, that he is the God who hid Moses in the rock, that he is the God who tramples the sea. Because if he is truly those things, then he deserves your worship. And if he is truly those things, he not only deserves your worship, but he deserves your whole life. These men in this boat, with the exception of, of Judas, go from hardened hearts to a budding faith to a martyr's death because he deserves their lives because Jesus is 
our divine, sympathetic Savior. He is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, would you help us by your grace to see you, Jesus, and who you are, to see you in your divinity, the God of creation, the one who spoke all things into existence, the God who walked through the garden with Adam and Eve. promise-making God to Abraham. The great I am of Moses. Jesus, you are God. Would you help us believe? And in our belief, would you help us worship you rightly for who you are? God, would you help us give our lives for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.